We so often read the newspaper or watch the news or see it on Facebook. That's something that we read and hear and find shocking. It may be uh, a news article such as this. Uh, I read this the other day. Um, the headline was, Shocking footage as Swansea Yobs set cars on fire in May Hill. They were setting cars on fire and then rolling them down a hill. You read articles like that and you do sit in shock. Maybe it's the scenes in Israel at the moment as the rockets uh, fly through the sky and then you're left looking and seeing the buildings, the rubble, the people frantically trying to find uh, family and friends. It's shocking to see. And this morning, the Apostle Paul is shocked at what he is hearing uh, of the Corinthian church. Verse 1, I could hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you. He hears this report and he's horrified. He's shocked at what is going on in the church. This incident that he draws out in this chapter of this uh, sexual immorality that's going on. He's so shocked because this is something that even those outside the church wouldn't engage in and find scandalous themselves. And Paul cannot believe that he's hearing reports of this happening in the church, in God's new community in a culture where anything goes. The church is to be different. And this was the problem. There was a man, a Christian man, who was in a relationship with his stepmother. The, the tense of, uh, of that implies that this has been going on for a long time and it continues to go on. We can assume that the woman involved is not a Christian as Paul addresses the man and the actions that he pleads with the church to take are only in relation to uh, the man. So that in itself is shocking. But what Paul finds even more shocking is the response of the church. Verse 2, you are so proud of yourselves. Does this gross sexual sin within the church, which as I've said, is scandalous to the society, yet in the church, they're proud of it. That is the problem that Paul addresses in the Corinthian church this morning. And Paul will go on to show them, first of all, what they must do, why they must do it, and what they must remember. And so, first of all, what they must do, what should they do about this situation? Verse 2 continues, you should be mourning in sorrow and shame and you should remove this man from your fellowship. What should their response be to this sin that is um, happening within the church? Their first response should be one of grief. They should be mourning over this sin that is taking place within the church. We see it so often in the scriptures how sorrow over sin should be our response. It's a proper response. 
So we read in Ezra chapter 10, while Ezra prayed and made this confession, weeping and lying face down on the ground in front of the temple of God, a very large crowd of people from Israel, men, women, and children gathered and wept bitterly with him. You see, as this confession is happening, as they recognize sin, there is grief, there is mourning over the offense that has been caused towards God. We read something similar in Romans uh, chapter 9. So their first response should have been one of grief and mourning over this sin, this offense towards a holy God. And then they needed to act. They needed to act by removing this man from the fellowship. Paul says, put him out. Put him out of your fellowship. We know that since Paul had left this church, that their opinion of him had changed. They now saw him as foolish and unwise, and the message that he brought of the cross and Christ crucified as foolish and unwise. Yet Paul goes on in verse 3 and 4 to remind them that even though he's absent from them physically, he is with them in spirit. And if he was there physically, he would make this same judgment on this man. And so while he is absent but with them by spirit, they too should make that same judgment upon this man's sin. They should judge him and put him out of the fellowship with the authority of Christ. Some will say in response, we're not to judge people. Didn't Jesus say, do not judge? Well, yes, he did say, do not judge. But in that chapter in Matthew 7, Jesus at that point is speaking about people with a judgmental spirit, that sort of critical attitude uh, that comes from self-righteousness, looking at themselves as being sort of better and superior than anyone else. And Jesus says to that person, first of all, pull the plank out of your eye before you go around picking the specks out of other people's eyes. So yes, in one sense, we're not to judge, but just a few verses later in Matthew 7, Jesus says, watch out for false prophets. And if we're to watch out, that involves making a judgment, judging. So Jesus isn't blanket saying, don't judge anything. What he is saying is there are times when we need to make a judgment. When it comes to the purity of the church, Jesus gives us the authority to make a judgment on that sin. And Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, hand this man over to Satan. Throw this man out and hand him over to Satan. This man is to be treated as an unbeliever. It's not he's thrown out and what awaits him uh, is hell. Because if he is a true believer, when he goes through this painful discipline within the church, he will turn away 
from this foolish behavior that he's engaging in and he will come back as the rest of that verse continues, which we'll look at in a moment. But as he continues in this unrepentant sin, he is to be treated as an unbeliever. But why? Why must they do this? We read these words of Paul and they seem really harsh uh, for us to hear. But Paul gives two reasons why this is the course of action that must be taken. The first one is for the sake of that individual. So verse 5, throw this man out and hand him over to Satan so that his sinful nature will be destroyed and he himself will be saved on the day the Lord returns. The reason to put this man out of the fellowship of the church is so that he may repent and then be restored to the fellowship. This course of action is done out of love for the benefit of that man. He's handed over, he's put out in the hope that he will see the foolishness of his sin, repent and turn back to Christ. Let me just say at this point, this is a last resort. Paul is saying put him out as a last resort, but it is in line with what Jesus says. So in Matthew 18, Jesus goes through this uh, order of church discipline. If somebody is in sin, go to that person uh, and challenge them on that sin. If they continue and they're unrepentant, go with one or two other people. If then they continue in that sin, bring it before the whole church. If then they're still unwilling to repent of that sin, then put them out in the hope that they will see the foolishness of their ways repent and turn back to Christ. This man was living in deliberate and severe sin and he must be brought to his senses. Let me also point out that there's a difference between somebody who is willfully living in sin and somebody who is battling sin within their lives. There is a difference there. One person continues in sin and thinks nothing of it. The other sees sin in their lives and are desperate to uproot it and get rid of it. There's that recognition that, yes, I sin. There's that working at trying to get rid of it. There's that asking for forgiveness. There's that battle with sin in their lives. So there's a difference uh, between this man and somebody who recognizes sin and is battling it, although they may still fall to whatever sin it is in their lives. That's partly why we have a confession every week on a Sunday morning. Because we know that we still sin. And it's good and right that we acknowledge that sin. Recognizing that we fall short. But we want to get rid of whatever sin it is in our lives. As we seek to live a holy life honoring to our great God. The hope is that as this man is put out of the fellowship, the pain uh, that comes with it will drive him 
to repentance. That is the first reason for the sake of this individual. The second reason is for the sake of the church. If you've ever made bread, you know the effects of yeast. You know that in all this flour, that you only need a little pinch of yeast to have an effect on the whole uh, of the flour and the dough. Yeast was really rare at at this time uh, in history. And so they would use leaven, which was created um, from a new batch of dough. They would make this dough, and after a period of time, it would begin to ferment. uh, And then they would pull a chunk off and save it for the next time they made bread. And they would add this old leaven into the new, new batch of dough and then it would go about doing its work and creating all the air bubbles and whatever in the bread. And so Paul compares this sin of this man to the effects of yeast in bread. He says, in Christ, you have been made a new batch of dough. You are a fresh batch of bread. Yet, you're in danger of being spoiled and ruined by not addressing this sin within the church. If you do not remove this old leaven of sin, it will spoil the whole batch of dough. Paul reminds them that they are a new unleavened bread. And he reminds them that they've become that because Jesus is the Passover lamb. It takes us back to our studies in Exodus. You'll remember um, where they needed to slaughter that lamb, put its blood on the door, eat the lamb, and make bread without yeast, ready to go quickly when the time came. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is in him that we have been made new. And so as new people, we must do everything we can to rid ourselves of the old leaven of sin. The problem in Corinthians uh, was that they were so proud of some of the old ways and they didn't want to get rid of them. And this is just an example of allowing sin within the church. And so this man must be put out in the hope that he will repent and for the sake of the church. They must remove this old uh, bread of malice and wickedness and instead live as new bread of sincerity and truth. And so Paul goes on, having shown them why they must do what he's told them to do, by reminding them um, by reminding them of what I've forgotten. But anyway, let's continue. He's reminded them of something, and we'll discover it as we continue. So Paul had written to them previously, verse nine. 
He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexual immoral people. And he goes on, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. So Paul had previously written to them and they had misunderstood what he was saying because they'd taken it that they were to have nothing to do with the world around them. But Paul points out that that is impossible. That is impossible. You would have to leave this earth to not interact with anyone in the world outside the church who fits into one of those uh, categories that Paul has just mentioned. It's completely impossible. What, so Paul goes on to restate what he actually meant and how they should have taken what he said previously. He goes on, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul had written previously and he restates it here that if somebody is claiming to be a brother or sister in Christ yet continues to live in willful sin, then have nothing to do with them. Don't even accept them at the dinner table because their confession of faith does not line up with how they are living in willful sin. Those outside the church make no pretense of being a follower of Christ, of being a Christian. God will judge those people. But the church is to judge those inside the church when it comes to unrepentant sin for the sake of the gospel and the purity of the church. The church is to be different from the world. And if within the church there's no difference, then the gospel suffers. The church's purity uh, is gone. And so Paul wants them to remember and know that truth. So what is the lesson for us today? Well, I think it's this, that we must take sin seriously, both in our own lives and in the life of the church. Billy Graham said this, the cross shows the seriousness of sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. Sin is serious, never take it lightly. We must flee from it, flee from the old leaven, the old fleshly desires. Those things that Paul lists, sexual immorality, greed, idolatry, slander, drunkenness, swindling. God has put us together so that we can help one another flee from sin. Dealing with sin can be difficult and painful. But we must do it out of love for our brother and our sister in Christ, for the love of Christ, for his church, and for his word. Proverbs 27 verse 6. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. 
but an enemy multiplies kisses. We need to be serious about sin. And this is not a call for us to be the sin police. Certainly not in the world around us. The world outside the church needs to hear the gospel. They need to hear the good news of Jesus so that they may repent and believe and have new life in Jesus. We're not called to be the sin police out there and we're certainly not called to be the sin police within the church. It is a call to help our brother or sister who is caught in sin. Following the rules that Christ lays out in Matthew 18 for the good of that person and for the purity of the church. So let's be earnest in asking God our Father to show us the sin in our own lives, in the life of the church. And let's ask him by the power of his spirit to help us uproot that sin which so hinders us in our lives. We've been, been made new in Christ and our lives must be consistent with our new identity in him. And he is one of the greatest protections from sin. It is to focus on Christ and him crucified. It's to remember the cost that was paid on the cross by Jesus so that we might be forgiven and have new life. David Brainard was a missionary to um, the American Indians and he wrote this in his diary. I never got away from Jesus and him crucified and I found that when my people were gripped by this great evangelical doctrine of Christ and him crucified, I had no need to give them instructions about morality. I found that one followed as the sure and inevitable fruit of the other. I find my Indians begin to put on the garments of holiness and their common life begins to be sanctified even in small matters when they are possessed by the doctrine of Christ and him crucified. Let that be true for us. Let us always look to Christ and him crucified and remember the cost that was paid for us. As we look to him, as we occupy our minds with him, we will not then be occupied by sin at the same time. Let us remember often, as we will this morning, as we share bread and wine together, the cost that was paid as Jesus died on the cross to bring about our forgiveness of sin. So let us free from sin, let us uproot it in our lives for the sake of ourselves and for the sake of the church and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the love shown to us as he willingly went to that cross to bring about forgiveness of sin and new life in him. Help us as your people to be quick to flee from sin. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and the sacrifice that he made. Help us by your spirit to live holy lives that honor you, for your praise and glory. Amen.